Spencer, we had a bit of a short week this past week because of Interbike. Did you get to ride your bike at least 50 miles? I think I did, Fred, because I got out Wednesday morning for a little spin along the river path in Reno, Nevada. It's lovely there. Beautiful Reno. Well, that's great. If you get 50 miles a week in, uh, at least you could get $500,000 in life insurance coverage starting at just 20 bucks a month thanks to our good friends at Health IQ. We love Health IQ, Spencer. What can you say about that? That's right, Fred. They've been supporting the podcast for a long time. You can go to healthiq.com slash velonews to get a free quote on your life insurance and also support this podcast. Do you think the 50-mile thing works on an e-bike? It probably depends on what speed it's governed to and uh, European Union regulations and some other odds and ends. Ask our friends at Health IQ about that one. At least you're getting out, right? At least you're getting out and riding. But again, that URL is healthiq.com slash velonews. You can take a Health IQ quiz and get a quote on with the podcast. Uh, It's the Velonews Podcast. I am Fred Dreyer here in the bowels of the Velonews World Headquarters. With me today is Dane Cash, back from your vacation. Dane, you survived. Yay. Yay. No dysentery. Uh, Sounds like there may have been some dysentery. No, No, just the flu. Just a regular old illness this time around. Old Dane got dysentery one time down in South America. Covering a bike race. Covering a bike race. For this publication, actually. Yeah, exactly. So it really, you know, he's seen the very worst of uh, what what can happen when you travel south. But this was just a lovely vacation, and uh, yeah. Dane, was it a vacation from bike racing, though? Uh, I, I definitely watched a little bit of bike racing oh, down great. there. Yeah. yeah, Don't worry, I'm always watching. Girlfriend must have loved that. Probably. <laughs> yeah. She liked that, yeah. Hey, uh, honey, I'll be out there on the beach. Yeah. Just, 5K to go. Just, just 5K to go. Just give me a minute here. 5K I mean, to go. There's the Trofeo uh, Guido Chiapucci uh, race you've never heard of. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, i got to finish that one up. Uh, also joined by Spencer Paulus. And Spencer, we survived Interbike. I like Interbike. What's your... People gripe about it, but yeah. it's I enjoy it. I do. I just didn't like all of the recycled air that made me dry as if I were walking across the desert. Got a moisturized dog. Ah, seriously. What was your top interbike uh, memory? What was your favorite thing from interbike? Uh, it was fun to get out and watch the Reno Cross race. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was good to see that race in a new venue. It you know, previously was Cross Vegas, and uh, Cross is here. Cross has been coming for a while, and it's finally here. So it's exciting to see those riders out there. And yeah, and also, you know, it's fun to do a little gambling. Lost about 30 bucks on the blackjack table. Ooh. You were busy gambling. You didn't get to, book, to boogie down with me and Leonard Zinn. Yeah, I don't we like were dancing. up at, in the dance club at the 100% party, just shaking down. Leonard Zinn, big tall guy, got some wicked dance moves, I learned. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, see the things you're missing out on by not going to Interbike, seeing hmm. Fred and Leonard dancing on a dance floor. I saw it in, on Instagram, so I, I feel like I got my fair share. There we Tall go. dudes dancing. <laughs> there we go. Uh, well, that's enough Interbike talk. It was Interbike. Uh, we have a great show today this week. We have the 2018 UCI Road World Championships going on as we speak. In fact, we may be a bit behind, depending on when you listen to this podcast, on some of the results from the big show. But we're going to speculate, we're going to break down the action, and we're going to uh, create our podium lists for the big races. Then in the second half of the show, guys, I had a wonderful interview with Denise mueller Koronek. Yes, that's right, Denise, the woman who recently broke the land speed record on a bicycle. Have you guys seen this video clip? Yeah, it's crazy. Pretty crazy. 
Yeah, so you get uh, you, you. She got towed up to speed behind this rocket car. Also, like, who came up with this idea for a record? Like, yeah. come on, this is oh. crazy. Well, John Howard, her coach, gave me a full history of it. Uh, it was very long. That's part of the interview as well. Do we get the tune in there too? His theme song. I think the- we're, let's just listen to it right now. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. The John Howard song. I told Denise. I Find said, it on YouTube. You, it's you really know, good. like you, you've gone faster than any human in history on a bicycle. But I think you need to have your own theme song. She does. Like John Howard. I agree. I agree. John Howard. Do it. <laughs> uh, anyway, we will chat with Denise about her record, which it, it's completely bonkers. If you haven't seen the video, what? I suggest hunting around for it. And it's this woman being towed behind a car and then she is freed and then pedals behind this rocket car. And it looks like complete chaos, like a hurricane basically going on in front of her face. What was 180? 183.9. God, miles per hour. Miles per hour. Yeah. And she has to hold that speed, I think, for a mile right. for it to count as a world record. And I heard a lot of detractors saying, wow, you know, she gets towed up to speed. This is kind of not a real record. And how hard is that? And it's like, yeah, you get towed up to speed. But once you get freed, first of all, to be able to put out the wattage to stay behind the car is is pretty intense. She said it's not like she's, a you know, the the world's best like track racer in terms of power output. It's basically being able to deal with the chaos of that situation. Because if you go like six inches one way to the right or left too much, you get the drag and then you'll get flung off your bike at 180 miles an hour. Ooh. So uh, a lot of skill and and some craziness, I feel like. Involved. And a special bike. We got a gallery of that bike actually on velonews.com. Yeah. We'll throw, throw the link in the profile. Carbon bike. Yeah, it's wild. It's, it's insane. Uh, guys, let's get to it. We have UCI... Road World Championships already started. We are recording this on Monday, so we just watched the U23 men's TT and the junior women's TT. Uh, when you listen to this, there may have been some time trials, road races, whatever, that have gone off, but we're living in the past, as we so often do. And my first question to you all is, what do you like about Road Worlds? Dane, what do you like about Row Worlds? Oh, man. I like a couple things about it. One of the big things for me, I, I tend to like the way they design the courses. I love that fans get to see them go by a bunch of times. It's a really cool introduction for a lot of people who might not know the sport that well because quite often, Worlds are in places that are not uh, hotbeds for cycling. Richmond, Virginia being one of them and being at that Worlds is great to see all that uh, all those riders going by, people that um, I knew didn't know anything about, about cycling. So that was really cool. Worlds offers that up. And then, of course, there's the great storylines every year that come out of uh, all these guys. They are not teammates the whole year long, and then they suddenly are thrown onto the same team, and they have to cooperate and be bros or, or gals. And that doesn't always work out very well. So It's very true. Spencer, yeah. what do you like about Worlds? I think, for me, it's just it has a special feeling to it because you know that the rider who wins this race is going to be wearing that rainbow jersey for the following season. And uh, it's uh, there's something about that that's there's nothing else that gives that type of recognition to a cyclist. Yeah, you know, you Tour de France, you could wear the yellow jersey for, for a week, two weeks even. You know, Chris Froome probably could wear the whole the whole race if he wanted. But wearing that rainbow jersey is special, and it just has 
I don't know. It's just, yeah, it, it's also, it's also unpredictable too. And, and I think that that is another aspect of it where yet you often see a guy win it or, or, or a gal win it. And you just didn't expect that at all. And that's always kind of fun. Yeah. I'm with you. It's racing. That's often difficult to, um, to control. So you're with, you're with these, these national teams and the strongest national teams oftentimes are not strong enough to control the racing, especially on the last lap. Uh, circuit race, so you get to see them go around a lot. A lot of times the circuits they choose are really challenging and they're circuits that the riders haven't seen before. So that adds to the element of like, what the heck is going to go on? It's one thing if it's, you know, get a game and everyone's been on that course before and you know when it's going to break up. Um, and then there's just nasty, filthy uh, national team kits. Oh, yeah. The mm. Spanish one we yeah. saw today oh, yeah. was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. it, it was as if you'd yeah. gotten in a time machine back to the days of Miguel Indurain, and you had this wild, like, yellow and red fade yeah. and um, a few a, f- you know, a few too many corporate logos on it, too. I'm not sure how they slipped that one past the UCI. I do feel like we're guilty from time to time of having some pretty gross... Uh, yeah, kids, that's true. But we'll say. but Dane had a really strong take on this terrible, terrible Spanish Ooh, national mm. team jersey. What not was that, that hashtag? Dane? Not that bad. Yeah, no, actually, I think it is pretty bad. Yeah, but uh, it does detract from the uh, the uh, staring at Alejandro Valverde's balding. Hey, head. so yeah. be it's nice. A, to it's a decoy. It's a distraction. I think that that one is a real throwback, but throwback to maybe like uh, McDonald's employees. Yep, got a little McDonald's vibe going. Yeah, yep. definitely. Need less sunglasses or something to look at it. Do not look directly at the mm. kit. You may go blind. Yeah, the U.S., they had the Spider-Man kit for a while. Do you remember that one? Yeah, of course, Ooh. yeah. I mean, Katie Compton wore that to yeah. the silver medal at Cross Worlds, yeah. as, as did Jonathan Page, I think, that same year. I like the current U.S. team kit, the yeah. uh, Asos. It's pretty it's good, I think. Yeah, it's pretty classic. classic. That, yeah. You know, if you go classic, you can't go wrong. Yeah. So unpredictable racing, uh, interesting circuits, ultra-long courses, and team kits. There's plenty to like about World Championships. Let's get into it because we have the time trials and we have the elite road races to break down. Um, Guys, when we look at this elite road race field, we, um, you know, this year's Worlds, first of all, stands out because... Uh, in recent years, we've seen worlds that cater to sprinters or cater to rollers, cater to men and women who, yes, can climb, but it's more about the punch and the tactics, whereas this year's worlds has very much been built all about the climb. So for the elite men, 260 kilometers, 47, almost 4,700 meters of climbing, 15,321 feet of total oh. climbing. Oh. And the women will do 24 about 2,400 meters of climbing. Yeah. Quite a bit as well. So lots of climbing. And Spencer, what can you say about these climbs that these riders are going to face? The climbs are, well, so it's, it's a, like you said, a circuit. So it's this one climb that is the primary feature of the course. And it's, it's kind of what you would expect from a, a climb in Austria where the roadways are a bit more engineered. Uh, the climb is fairly steady. It's about five, 5.7% average and it's 7.9 kilometers. So it's, it's quite a grind and, uh, it's not necessarily a climb that a, a pure climber could attack on explosively, but at the end of the men's elite road race, there's a different circuit that includes that one long climb, but it also includes 
a short 2.8 kilometer climb that averages 11.5%. Now that is something that you could work with. And there's even ramps. I, I, that what I'm seeing here, which seems a little crazy, is there's a ramp at 28%. I'm not entirely sure if I believe that, but I think there is definitely a ramp that gets close to 20%. And provided the group stays together to that point, I think that's where your move comes. And now the women, the elite women's road race, they don't do that crazy little climb at the end, which is a bit unfortunate, I'd say, but they will, of course, have those um, they, they will go on the lap over and over on that, that long climb. So Dane, when you see a profile like this, shark's teeth, uh, basically a, uh, manageable, long, gradual climb that you're going to hit seven times before a very short, steep, punchy climb. How do you think the racing dynamic plays out and what type of rider do you think is best fit for a course like this? Well, I think typically in this sort of race, you get a number of maybe not so much favorites are going to go off the front. That's that's always the case. I mean, the early breakaway is going to get clear. But even if they get caught with a couple laps to go, you're probably going to see another group go away that's also not going to include the favorites. Because I think we've seen the last 10 years, the guys who are going to win this race, the favorites for this race, are not going to go on the attack until you know maybe 20K at most. That's just, that's just how it is. I mean, that tends to be how things are raced nowadays. And I would be very surprised if any of the big favorites went away on the uh, penultimate lap. And uh, I, I would think it's going to come down to this last lap. Things are probably going to come back together, probably be back together. Very small group for those final two climbs, the main climb and then that kind of additional really steep little climb at the end. And that's where I think it's going to really be decided. I think somebody's probably going to get away on that little climb. And the kind of rider who wins this race, obviously a rider with climbing legs. you got to have good climbing legs to even be there in the finish. Somebody who can descend as well because every time they go up, they, they also go down. And uh, somebody who's very explosive because that final climb is steep enough that you need to be explosive to get away. And that same kind of explosiveness usually helps you in a sprint too if it's a small group. So whether you're a you know really, really guy who loves the really steep climbs or somebody who likes a small sprint, it's kind of a similar skill set actually. So a guy like Alejandro Valverde or Julian Alaphilippe, these kind of flesh alone type riders or Liège-Bastogne-Liège type riders, those are the guys that I see thriving here. See, that's what I think too because I feel like the debate – that has been going on with this course up to this point has been like, well, do you choose a pure climber, someone who's potentially a Grand Tour winner because there is so much total climbing? Or could an in-betweener rider, even maybe a Amstel gold rider like a Nathan Haas, or maybe what about a Van Avermaet? Like how heavy is too heavy for the, uh, you know, accrued total meters of climbing plus that punchy climb at the end, because, I, you know, I'm with you. At first, I was like, well, pure climber. But then you throw in that punchy, steep ascent at the end, and it's like, well, uh, I was just remembering back to the 2016 Olympics. And I think I think a lot of us saw that long, gradual Vista Chinesia, or however you pronounced it, climb, and thought that the pure climbers were going to survive. And here's Van Avermaet, and each time he's just sagging on the back, and he's doing what he can to survive, and then holds on for the sprint. So what do we think? What's too heavy how heavy is too heavy for this course? Uh, it's it's going to be tough to say. The thing about that that climb on the main circuit is it's eight kilometers. So if you consider that as like an interval, basically, if you're just going to be doing these intervals all day long, which is what they're doing, I don't know how an eight kilometer climb at that gradient it wouldn't take probably much more than I want to say. 20 minutes 25 minutes perhaps for these guys for the gals maybe a little longer not much though and uh 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm, I don't know, am I over, am I doing the math right on that? I'm trying to think of how, what the average speed would be if you're doing it then. Both Dan and I are looking at you like puzzled, like, like the dog when you yeah, speak like, to you, the dog yeah. and it's just like, woof. My point, I guess, is that a Grand Tour rider is tuned for a, like a 15 or 20 kilometer climb. Yep. And so uh, this, this length of effort is, is a little more doable for, for our Den style guy, for maybe a Greg Van Avermet style guy. But I think the, accumul- the cumulative fatigue of doing all these climbs is perhaps going to be too much for someone like that to really be a factor on that final climb. They're, they're not going to be as comfortable as uh, a guy like uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, who's, a, who's a, definitely a climber, but also has an explosive kick. And if he can you know, be comfortable riding through the first half of those circuits, and then finally when it gets down to the, the really front end of the action, he's got some matches to burn, then that's the guy. And even Van Avermaet, I mean, he's pretty punchy, but that last climb, that last little climb, 11% gradient, it's got a almost a kilometer at 20%. That might be too hard for Van Avermaet, mm. the rest of the course aside. I mean, that's just a really tough little kick there. So I don't know about Van Avermaet. Well, let's go through some of these favorites, and you guys can just throw takes at me in terms of whether we think this guy can win and what it would mean. So atop my list, I have... The brothers Yates, mm. Simon and Adam. Simon's coming off the Vuelta Espana win. He was very impressive there, very fit. Uh, but yeah, you have to wonder what the motivation and what the fatigue level is like. Uh, Adam Yates, though, you know, he rode the Vuelta. He, had, he did a lot of work in that last week. Okay. Late peak. Could be a late peak. What do you guys think about Yates brothers as potential world winners? I like their chances. I mean, both of them actually started off being pretty punchy. They had some decent one-day success. Adam won uh, San Sebastian a couple years ago with a little bit of help, I think, from a moto running over Greg Van Avermaet. But he was up there. Uh, They're both guys that do have a little bit of explosiveness that we don't always see. So I think, yeah, decent chance. Maybe not my top favorite, but having both guys, that's a good team right there. Twin power. Mm. Can't underestimate Twin twin power. What about the strength of Team GB? Mm, You know, Garrett Thomas, Chris Froome, staying at home. Not going to be there. That might uh, might hurt them. We have we don't have final start lists, unfortunately. We have tentative. We have long lists. So right now it looks like Team G has what like thirty guys on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, they, they, there's plenty of strong climbing domestiques that that could be be tapped for the for the service of these Yates brothers. You got you know Hugh Carthy is on the long list. Gagan Hart as well. I think Gagan be Hart there for sure. Has yep. Proven himself. Uh, you know Ben Swift. There's plenty of strong riders for the okay. Brit- for the British, but uh, you know it's the type of course where it's maybe not strictly going to be team strength that wins today. Next guy on our list, a guy who on paper at least you would think would be one of the top top favorites, Vincenzo Nibali. Not mm. necessarily the fittest he's ever been. Downplaying his odds before the race already. Is, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting move. But Fabio Aru is out due to illness or something, I guess, or due to Aru ness due to being an due, yeah, exactly. So, eh, who knows? Nibley, uh, I mean, I'm sure Nibley would love a downhill finish like this race has, so why not? Yeah, they've been talking about Moscone being the team leader there. I don't know, the race might be a little hard for him. I mean, he's pretty talented, but he's more of a, I don't know, not so much a mountains kind of guy. He's a real punchy rider. Ooh, that's a great he take. Is. He's man. a puncher. Very, punchy. very much a puncher. <laughs> yeah. But also we should maybe say that how sad it is that Vincenzo Nibali is like not in great shape for I'm this world. I'm super disappointed. The it's perfect bummer. worlds for him. I yeah. am very disappointed. I know. I mean, that, you know, talking about that 2016 Olympic road race, I mean, uh, you should know. Should have been him. Should have yep. been him. Yep. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe. 
Yeah, I yeah. like his chits a lot. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. Uh, well, uh, does he still have his mustache? Ooh, good question. Because that definitely affects his wattage, I think. Last public photo way. I saw, he had a mustache. Good. So okay. I think he's on form. He's my favorite, then. Yeah. He's like Samson, only if Samson were impacted by his facial hair. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He, uh, just such a great Tour de France, and of course, winning Classica San Sebastian, which, like we said, similar to this race. Flesh. Flesh Wallone, uh, yeah, it's hard to bet against it. The French team is quite rich with talent, and it's been a long time since we've had a French world champion. So who knows? The the thing is, the French riders, they tend to like to cock block each other. That's sort of Whoa. something Ooh. they do, you know? So we'll see if they can they can all play nice together. But I, I have my doubts. One thing Aleph Leap did this year, I think, that makes him stand out a little more for me is win. He had a really nice like career leading up to this year where he would come in second a lot in a lot of big races, and it was like, oh, this guy's really talented, but can he actually win anything other than the Tour of California that one year? Uh, and this year he proved that he can. And not just small races. I mean, Flesh, we, we mentioned them, Flesh, San Sebastian, two tour stages. Uh, he won the Tour of Britain. I mean, he, he really had a very victory-filled year, and that says something, actually being able to take that final top step. Exactly. And he's strong at this point of the season, which is interesting to, to see. He just won the overall at the Okolo Slovenska. Oh, what a wonderful <laughs> race. And the uh, yeah, like you said, the Tour of Britain. So he's obviously on good form. Oh, yeah. I think he might be five-star favorite. Ooh, wow. Market five stars. Uh, Valverde, Ageless Wonder. I mean, the question with him, again, this is another um, course is perfect for him. It's great for him. Just maybe a little bit late in his career. And it's coming on the heels of him being so tired at the Welta. Yeah. Just yeah. falling apart on the penultimate day at Last the Last week was a junk show. and Ah, but Valverde, he always finds a way. Yeah, I'm not trying to bet against Valverde. Mm-mm. I mean, Worlds, he does find a way to not win. Actually, that's what he tends to find a way to do. But he does. he's had so much success there. Yeah, he's... As long as the Spanish team doesn't race him out of the medals, he'll be good. Tactically, very smart as well. Uh, Mikel Kwiatkowski, how about Cuiato? Wild card. Yeah. Just like, well, I mean, like when he won Worlds, he was kind of a wild card. People weren't really talking about him so much. Very much so, yeah. And that's kind of his MO, though. Every, when you start talking about him, that's when he disappears. If you start talking about him a favor, he decides to not win. <laughs> and then as soon as you kind of forget about him, it's like, hey, guys, remember me? Let me go win real quick. Talking, I- about, talking about who? Exactly. Who are we talking about? I, I feel know. like he's a guy who has to win from a longer range attack. I, I think if he is waiting till the penultimate climb or the final climb to go with a Alaphilippe or a Valverde, he is going to get beaten. But he oh. could pull a sneaky one. Oh, come on, man. Kwiatkowski won Milan San Remo in a two up sp- or in a three up sprint against Peter Sagan. I think I mean, he can out sprint. He could probably out sprint Alaphilippe and Valverde, but I don't know that he can hang with him on an eleven percent grade. Maybe not. So, that, so if he's waiting to the very end, he might get the doors blown off on that last climb. Great descender, though. Very good descender. So. Yeah. Um, we have a couple more on, on the list. You know, also on that French team, we should mention Roman Bardet and Thibaut Pinot. Um, again, that's a bit of that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen right there. Mm-hmm. I, I think if they're smart, they just say, "Hey, we're going to ride for Alaphilippe. He is looking the best right now." But uh, you know, does Pinot say, "Well, what about me? I went two stages of the Vuelta." Too yeah. much descending on this course for Pinot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he needs a net gain of elevation. No descending. Another question mark is the Colombian team because they do have Miguel Angel Lopez, who on paper you would think is a five-star favorite because of his explosive climbing. But then there's also Rigoberto Aran. There is um, who else is on that team? Naro we Quintana's on the team. Naro Quintana. Sergio Enao is on Hainau. the team. Yeah. yeah. Strong. Both of the both of the Haynows. Yep. Sebastian and Sergio. Hey now. Hey now. Uh yeah. I 
it's there's definitely a lot of young up and comers on this team. It's a little hard to say if Uran deserves to be the leader, just strictly on his, you know, gravitas and being yeah. the, the older guy in the group. But uh, he, uh, I, yeah, I feel like. I feel like Lopez has the high hand right now. He's got a bit of, uh, Oran has a bit of punch, uh, which is... He does. And, and Anao as well. The, uh, there's a couple guys in this team where I think they would maybe surprise some people if they're in a small group at the end. So I, I think they're really well suited to maybe just start attacking from 100K out. Oh, yeah. They should, there should be a Colombian in every break. Yeah. If, they, if they're doing it right, they'll have a Colombian in every break. Because exactly. that's, that's the way they'll, they'll have a shot. We should be directors. Yeah, mm. let's do this. Yeah. We got this. Uh, are we ready to pick a podium? I think we're ready to pick a podium. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, All right. Um, I will go first with my podium. Winning uh, in third place, I have Gianni Moscone punching his way onto the podium. Barf. Oh, yeah. Second place, Mikhail Kwiatkowski uh, disappearing in the background, like Dane says, and then appearing out of nowhere, almost to win. And in first place, I have Julian Alaphilippe. Hmm. That is my podium. (laughs) Moscone. Kwiatkowski, Philippe. Dane, what's your podium? Um, well, in third, I'm going to have uh, one of the Yates bros. Let's go with Adam. Okay. Uh, kind of playing a little quietly during the Vuelta and then showing up for the Worlds. I think Valverde is going to get on the podium, too. I don't think he's going to win, though, because I'm going to maybe be less exciting and also go with Julian Alaphilippe yeah. for the win. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm going I'm to say, uh, say Valverde in third, and then uh, Adam Yates in second. And then I think uh, Miguel Angel Lopez wins this. Mm. I think that the French team is they're going to mark themselves out of the race because they're French, and uh, the uh, the Spanish team probably will not do so great either for Valverde. Just thinking back to twenty thirteen, victory Colombia. That would be a sight to see mm-hmm. Colombian yeah. in rainbow. Uh, what's your favorite world road race in recent memory? Two thousand nine uh, Cadell Evans. That's mine. Oh, that was a good one. As a Virginian, I mean Richmond Worlds was the uh, obvious winner for me. Another so, good one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I really enjoyed the way that Kwiatkowski won in 2014. I mean, maybe that Spanish Ponferrada race was a bit forgettable in terms of the scenery or what have you, but uh, and I guess it was just in kind of a weird place in Spain, from what I remember Andy had tell me. But it, Kwiatkowski just won it with such panache, and I just really enjoyed that. That's probably... One of my favorites. Kind of looks like you too. So there, that's probably it. I don't think that's about the true. same height. Yeah, yeah, same color hair. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Miko Kwiatkowski <laughs> sure. is now editing Velanews.com, yeah. right. and he's blonde. Um, so now on to the women's race, where you know, if the men's race, you know, we have this storyline of all these guys who have the potential to win. We have that in the women's race too. However. It's the women's race the flat past few years has boiled down to the world versus the Dutch. The Dutch versus the world. We saw this last year. Um, that was definitely the dynamic that played out. And, you know, when you have a team with that much depth, and we're talking about reigning world champion uh, Chantal Block, we're talking about Anna van der Bregen, Anna van Vleuten, Mariana Voss, I mean, the list goes on. It, it it's a tough one to bet against. So when we look at this course, Dane, um, first of all, who are the Dutch women that stand out to you as potential winners on this course? Well, I, yeah, like kind of the whole team, honestly, but the, really the, the two big ones are Van der Breggen and Van Vluten. I think I think they're way above everybody else, even though would it really be that surprising to see any Dutch women win? No, but those two are, are kind of head and shoulders above the rest. You've got two Giro Rosa winners right there. Um, and this is a course that really suits very good climbers, and that's what they are. I mean, they're two of the world's best. Uh, they're, they're the two riders that are consistently up there in the very climber-friendly races. And as we discussed, this is a very climber-friendly race. The women's course, 
uh, doesn't have that little steep kicker at the very end, but it still has plenty of climbing meters. And so I think it's going to come down to those climber types. And and I think that sort of dichotomy that you brought up earlier, Fred, the kind of, is it a Liège rider or is it more of a Grand Tour type? That's actually a really good comparison between these two riders. I think Vanderbregen, obviously she's pretty good at riding Liège because she seems to win that race or one of those races every year. And then Van Vleuten is a rider who is great in the stage races. So uh, we'll be able to see, I think, between those two, uh, who's better on this course. I think we could see something like we saw last year, which is a front group of eight to ten riders separate itself, and then the Dutch riders just taking tur- take turns attacking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chantal Block, I believe, was the second rider to attack, and it was hers that stuck. But in the back, she had Van Vleuten and Van der Breggen marking all the moves. So, yeah, when you have... A tactical advantage like that, it's tough to beat. Although, you know, nothing shakes up a group quite like a 25% climb or quite like climbs that they hit over and over and over again. Uh, I suppose, do you have any dark horses that you're going to have your eyes on? Um, well, and we should add that there's not going to be that 25% yeah. climb actually yeah. in the women's race, unfortunately, but plenty of climbing regardless. Uh, dark horses. I think you know we we got to give a little uh, a little attention to to our own Americans that are mm-hmm. going to this race. There's, of course, um, we have you know Megan Garnier who is retiring this year. She's won the Giro Rosa, and um, I'd imagine she'll have special motivation in her last World Championships. Um, I think also we have to talk about Katie Hall, who's really the American climber of reference right now, and she's. You know, won all of the stage races in the U.S. this year, which is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, but for me, if I'm going to name a dark horse, I'm going to also name an American. I'm going to name Ruth Winder. She's a very good climber based here in Boulder, Colorado, and she also is an excellent descender. I've seen it firsthand, and I think that'd be pretty cool if Ruth got in an early breakaway and made a made an impact on the race. She just won two stages of the Tour de l'Ardèche she as well, did. so she's definitely on good form right now. I think the question that Ruth's going to have to ask herself is whether or not to ride as a domestique or as a marquee rider, because I know that watching worlds of past a lot of times she has taken it upon herself to be a real strong domestique and get on the front and either bring back breakaways or thin out the group so you know this could be one of those what role do i choose to have races uh for ruth yeah i believe she she would be the domestique but that could involve marking an early breakaway so you never know there there are different ways to play the domestique role uh, speaking of Boulder, a person who spends a lot of time in Boulder, Kashinua Doma, I think is another yeah. real top favorite for yep. this race. She's a great climber, and uh, I think you got to watch her. Also, uh, Ashley Mulman Passio has had a really nice year, just come really close to winning a bunch of races, and it has never actually quite gotten on the top step of a World Tour race, I think, but is an excellent climber. One of those riders, we talk about this a lot, where if the women's calendar actually had more races like the men's calendar, where there are actual climbs, she would probably be a much more consistent winner. This is a race where she gets to show her talents off, so I'm also going to be watching her. Yeah, uh, Momen Pasio and Nui Adoma. You know, Nui Adoma just won Lardesh, so she definitely has proven that she's on good form uh, right now. So, I mean, I, I hope all these women are flying going into the race because as strong as the Dutch women are, I want to see other women's teams out there take it to them, and if they are going to win, uh, really... Really make them work for it. So what is our podium now for the women's elite road race? I will go first. Okay. In first place, I have Anna Meek Van Vleuten. 
She's very strong. Real original, Fred. Real original. Real I know. Original. Front runner over here. Uh-huh. Uh, I have Anamik. In second place, I have Kasha Niwiyadoma. Third place, Ruth Winder getting on the box. Oh. Yeah. All right. All right. Go for it, Ruth Winder. Uh, I'm going to put Vonderbregen on top. Okay. And I'll put Van Vloyten in second. Real original. And Niwiyadoma gets on the podium as well, I think. But those three are my top three pretty clear. I'm going with um, Form over Palmaris. And I'm going to say Niwiyadoma because she just won a lot dash overall. And uh, I think I think that the Dutch women will will round out second and third between Van der Breggen and Van Vluten and uh, Dealer's Choice. I don't know. Say Van Vluten second, I guess. That's a lot of orange on one podium. Yeah, it, it is. is. But I mean, you know, it could be a it could be a sweep of Dutch women on the podium. Let's face it, they could do that. Man, yeah, Lucinda Braun could get up there, or any any other rider on that list. Windmills, wooden shoes, uh, dikes, lakes. Yeah. What other stereotypical Dutch things can we talk about? Vans. Uh, having fun in Amsterdam. You know? yeah, yeah, there you go. Coffee shops. Things you could do in Colorado and Amsterdam. And women cycling. Now, honestly, yeah. when I think about yeah. when I think about like the stereotypical Dutch things, I'm like, all right, wooden shoes, windmills, and awesome female cyclists. Speed skating, too. And well poles. Throwing speed skating. He's pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, finally, before we end our world's talk, we do have to talk about the... ITTs, the time trials, Spencer's favorite event. Loves to just tune into those time trials, watch paint dry. Because you know, watch a cyclocross. Yeah, I mean, is it really true? Oh my gosh. You know, with with time trials, it's not so much about the viewing, but more along the lines of the storyline behind each rider going into it. And I feel like in the men's race, in men's elite race, we do have um, some interesting storylines to talk about. Um, Tom Dumoulin, whether he can defend, whether, you know, winning. The World Time Trial Championships back-to-back. That's definitely a stamp of authority. Um, you know, we saw uh, Fabian Cancellara win a lot of time trials. Then we saw Tony Martin win a lot of time trials. And I think about uh, cycling time trials as, as the era of these different strong men. And so to, if Dumoulin is able to go back-to-back, I feel like that would be ushering in a new era in the uh, individual time trial space. Um, but then, of course, you have to have a contender... And this year, that contender is Rowan Dennis. I mean, he's been a contender for the last few years, but it really does seem like the stars are aligned for him to have a really good ride. He won the time trials at the Welta. He's on good form. But guys, we got to talk about Rowan Dennis's luck Mm. at World's TTs because I believe he has dropped his chain not once but twice in World's TTs. Yeah. And I think, didn't he have some mishap at the Olympic time trial as well? Yeah. I'm trying to remember that one. I'm not so sure if that's true. Sometimes he's just not great. Yeah. And other ones, so. So, yeah. I mean, if ever there were a guy who should be winning this race, that luck has just, like, zapped him with a lightning bolt, it's Rowan Dennis. So, anyone want to go out on a limb? Dumoulin versus Dennis? Yeah. I think that'll be a nice matchup. I, I think... I think Dumoulin's more seasoned, so that's perhaps why he doesn't have as much bad luck as he's more accustomed to the pressure of going up and being ready to win a major race, you know, a world championship at Giro d'Italia. And uh, Rowan Dennis is getting close, but he's still developing, learning, and I guess he sort of thinks he should race Grand Tours, but maybe not. So maybe that's a little distracting. I'm not sure. There's also a hefty climb in the middle of the, well, maybe the second third of the of the route, and both those guys are decent climbers. So neither sure. one is a, is a, maybe a Tony Martin style no. guy and who's going to be challenged. But maybe Dumoulin gets a slight edge with a climb in there. I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, Dennis is a fine climber as well, sure, and sure. Uh, yeah, definitely thinking back to the 
Norway World Championships time trial that had that climb at the end with that wacky bike change red carpet thing that some guys used. Yeah. Uh, we should do that for all time trials. Who had the really bad bike? Was it Luchenko? I think it was Luchenko. Oh, one of the man. one of the uh, Kazakhstan guys, he had to like sleep in the team trailer or something probably after that. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. But that was kind of fun. I yeah, it was good to watch. Eat gruel. Uh, on the women's side, I mean, again, we have to talk about Dutch riders, Van Vleuten, uh, Van der Breggen. I also am going to have my eyes on Amber Nieben. Uh, 43 years young. She won it two years ago. Didn't have a great TT last year, but I feel like this is more of a course suited to her strengths, which is, you know, rolling terrain. Yeah, there's a climb, but it's not a big, steep climb to finish it off. And definitely have my eyes on Amber Nieben. But between Van Vleuten and Van der Breggen, I mean, they went 1-2 last year with Van Vleuten winning. Uh, Dane, do you have any insight into who may be TTing better this time of year? I really don't. I feel like it's just such a, there's such a, closely matched pair in the time trial because I feel like at any race you could look at and, and one's doing better. I, I feel like Van Vleuten maybe has a slightest edge in the TTs, but, and with her, the other thing is eventually she's got to, she's got to stop being so great in the TTs, right? I mean, just like Valverde, she seems like she's an ageless wonder and she has not reached that point yet. And I guess if Amber Neben and a number of other American women are an indication that's not going to happen for another five years. But maybe one day uh, that will happen. Yeah, you know who I have my eyes on, though, for that? Yeah. Chloe Dygert. Mm. Chloe Dygert Owen coming up. Mm-hmm. She was fifth last year, and I think she had some sort of, I don't know, minor disaster. So I'm looking to her for the future. Rough year for her this this season. Though, yeah, yeah. Crashed, hit her head at Tour of California. It's been on the way back. Yeah. Uh, we, we should mention, though, that uh, Vanderbregen, for all of her amazing accolades in Palmeiras, has yet to win an elite world title. So you have to figure that that is very near the top of her list. Yeah, I think uh, for her, it's like, what else is there to achieve? I mean, she's achieved everything, most of most of the things she's achieved twice. Yeah. So this is definitely the, the white whale of her, I think, uh, Palmeiras. Learn to play the violin, maybe. Uh, mm. Cultivate a That's herb, right. herb garden. Yeah, she's uh, another one of those women cyclists who's just like, you know, virtuoso. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, advanced degrees, super smart. You know, but plays a musical instrument. Um, yeah, just, I heard that she's. A, I heard that um, she's great at baking. Hmm, sure, why not? Yeah, Throw that I'll in buy the mix. It. Yeah, yeah. I forget who who was interviewing. They're like, oh yeah, I think it was Nui Adoma. She said, oh, she's just, she's great. You know, super fun off the Ooh, bike. In an alternate universe, power couple, her and Jasper Stuyven. She'd be doing the bakery, and then Jasper Stuyven do the chocolate. With the chocolate, oh, yeah. Ultimate. Like ride stop there, be amazing. Yeah, we if can't only just, if we only. can't just give away these ideas, Spencer. <laughs> you know, I don't think many people listen to this, so don't worry about it. Well, that was the World Championships ride, Spencer. Before we get to Denise Koronek, uh, we have a word from one of our uh, sponsors from our gravel coverage this year. Correct? Yeah, Fred, that's right. We're sending Chris Case out to California for Grinduro this weekend. It's a very fun race. I did it last year. And he will be aboard the 3T Exploro gravel bike. This is a bike I actually rode at um, the Rebecca's Private Idaho race uh, a few weeks back. Now, what can you say about this 3T on the very terrain that you come up against at a Granduro or a Rebecca's Idaho? Yeah, you know, the thing about gravel racing is you do end up with these kind of long stretches where it's kind of fast and could be maybe a little windy, that sort of thing. And the 3T Explorer is one of the only gravel bikes that really takes a serious look at aerodynamics to make sure that the bike doesn't hold you back on some of those fast sections. And uh, the Explorer does that as well as, you know, combining the lightweight and uh, comfort, good fit, and it can fit either a 700C or 650B wheel. So really versatile and it's great for aerodynamics. Well, thanks to 3T for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. And for more 
information, check them out online. All right, guys, let's hear from Denise Mueller, Kolarinek. I talked to her at Interbike about her crazy ride. Okay, you're tuned into the Velo News podcast, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Denise Mueller, Karenik, and John Howard. And we're just a few days removed from Denise, you breaking the, he, the, the, the what's the official title of the speed record here? The Paced Bicycle Land Speed Record. This is the one that we had on our website, uh, complete with photos and videos that we linked to on, on the Wall Street Journal of Denise pedaling her bicycle behind this rocket car on the Salt Flats out in Utah. And it looked completely bonkers and crazy. And Denise, we actually spoke with you two years ago at Interbike. We're at Interbike right now. Because at that point, you had set, the, you had set a record uh, for females in this category. And this current record, you're the fastest human to ever do it. So take me from two years ago to today. First of all, why did you want to come back and try this again? And what did you do differently this time? Well, two years ago, we had our mindset. In fact, it actually went back several years because John Howard's the one who came up with this idea to even go after the women's record because no woman had ever done this record. So that started back in 2012. We went out in 2016 to go for the women's record, and we accomplished in doing that at 147.7 miles per hour. But it was a big learning curve to be able to get to that speed and to utilize the pace vehicle and the air pocket to the maximum potential for me to be able to go to this speed. So we actually had one more day on the event and we were supposed to get out there and we were very confident we were going to be able to hit 155, but it rained. And so we got to the salt and we were so on this adrenaline high, knew what we were capable. We had left so much on the table that we opened our mouths and said, we're going to come back and we are not only going to just come back to go what we think we can go, we're going to actually go back out here and go and break the men's record. And so we set that goal back in 2016. It took us two years to be able to come back to the salt, get a vehicle ready, which ironically we're using Fred Rompelberg's vehicle that he used in 1995 to set his record of 166.9 miles per hour. So I'm sure there were a lot of things that went into those two years of planning, but what are like the big building blocks when you're looking at trying to go from breaking the women's speed record to the human, to the, to, you know, the all time human speed record, what are the big steps that you had to accomplish to get from point A to point B? Well, there's several things as far as the things that we had to do to accomplish is we had to then do more training in preparation. So I already knew what to expect. The training that we did leading up to 2016, we saw what worked. And so we took that and took it to the next level. The other things that also helped us is in 2016, the salt conditions weren't very good and we had only four miles. So one of the things is we had five miles, which is the normal long course in order to do that in 2018. All three of the previous men's record holders that have done it at Bonneville have had at least the five miles of salt. So that was another element that helped us. Um, The other thing was we had 2016's experience. We used the same pace car driver, which is Shea Holbrook, and so we were able to take that experience and bring it to the next level in 2018. And the irony is I only had three runs behind this vehicle because we had so many issues in getting the vehicle prepared that I didn't get an opportunity to do any practice runs. So actually the event was my first time behind the vehicle and I only did three runs and it was set on the third one. 
That's terrifying. <laughs> John, um, we need a history lesson here. Talk to me about the history of setting these types of records. You set one um, back, um, it was, I believe, in the 1980s? 85. 85. So what's the history here, and how has the technique and technology evolved? Well, you have to understand the, the significance of the bicycle as a transportation source, uh, replacing the horse in many regards, and then the quick application of, of motors to the bicycle in the late 1890s. Um, primarily, it was the French uh, Didion Burton motors, the, the single cylinder, best engine in the world at the time, and, and they were imported by uh, Albert Champion from in containers. He brought them over from France. Those were the first motorcycles. Those uh, tribunes and uh, um, uh, orients uh, of the of the era. They were all tandems, and the, the first motorcycles were the pacing vehicles of the bicycle racers. And this is why cycling was so popular. Incredibly dangerous. Over the course of about two decades, there were over 30 riders that were killed in uh, competitions and, and also spectators because they would fly off these little uh, velodromes and the, the bikes were way too fast for the tracks. Uh, they would break chains. They would pull nipples out of hubs. Uh, it was just it was it was exciting but extremely dangerous and um, among that group was major taylor who set five world records on uh, shaft drive sager shaft drive bike which essentially became the differential on every automobile that existed after that so there were some very important mechanical inventions uh, pneumatic tire all started on bicycles went to motorcycles and finally uh, the automobile. Henry Ford called his first uh, car the quadricycle in appreciation of the bicycle. He was an avid cyclist his whole life. So those are a few of the of the critical steps of history which led to the motor age and cycling was so much a part of that motor age that we feel that Project Speed is the is the logical evolution of that era and it pays homage to that period of, of of world history. When did people start to get the idea to try and set the land speed record by riding behind a car? Who were the first people to do that, and, and when did you then uh, get into that uh, that project? Oh, good, good question, Fred. The first first organized attempt at a speed record was Charlie Murphy, who's a, a New York City beat cop who uh, also was quite a good cyclist, rode many uh, uh, Madison Square Garden six-day races, and was one of the best of, of his era. And he decided, uh, it, was a, it was a big, big Long Island uh, express train promotion. And this, this was the fastest train of the era. It was the fastest train in the world. And they barely managed to make it go 60 miles an hour. Uh, and they laid boards uh, between the rails. And they calculated approximately the, how the train would accelerate. And they laid down exactly what they thought was enough boards. Well, Murphy ran out of boards. He actually did it, uh, made three attempts at it, finally got it done. Uh, but they ran out of boards. And they the press... Uh, 
thank you very much, picked him up and lifted him off of the, of the, of the track and probably saved his life. That was the most exciting thing that happened. Charlie, Mile a Minute Murphy after that. And that led to four, five, six, seven more attempts. Uh, um, there was Jose Mafre in the 40s. There was uh, Alfred Letournier, probably the greatest six-day racer that ever lived, broke the record in, the, uh, I want to say, the 50s. And it went on and on like that. Of course, Denise could correct me on that because I'm not exactly sure of the dates, but um, my record was done in 1985. So I was just carrying the torch. That's all I was doing. And we got to the point where uh, when I went into a uh, Schwinn store back in 19... 60s in the 60s and I saw that comic of Letournier on the Schwinn Paramount I thought I got to do this so that that was my inspiring story so now Denise one of the biggest challenges um, that I remember from our last conversation is talking about the um, air pocket that forms behind this car and your ability to ride in it. It sounds like there's a lot of wind, a lot of buffeting going around. How would you describe the sensation of being behind this air pocket of a car going, you know, 180 miles an hour? And what are the challenges of staying in there? Well, it's funny because both times I had two different vehicles that I went behind and it was a lot smoother um, behind the SUV that we used in 2016. And I also had a larger um, distance from left to right of 58 inches for the fairing. And I really was pretty comfortable, um, but it was only at 147 miles or 147 miles an hour. And so taking it up in speed and changing the fact that I lost 12 inches because now I'm only in a 46 inch wide fairing and the shape of the car disrupted the air a lot more and it was a lot rougher of a ride. I was not anticipating it would be as rough as it was. I had to do quite a bit to stay in the air pocket which was very narrow because I'd go a little bit to the left and felt it, a little bit to the right and felt it. In 2016 I only once in about 10 or 15 runs that we ever did behind the car where I ever felt the side pocket of the air. And so it was um, a lot more rough air that I had to deal with. I had a couple of times, if you look at the video, because we have the video up for the raw footage from mile mark from when we started to the end, and you'll see at least a couple times where I got very close to the fairing because I'm being buffeted back and forth, left and right. Not to mention I'm trying to make sure I'm buffeting forward and back properly in the air pocket, but I'm being thrown left to right. And so it was a very rough ride with a very dirty air or rough air that I was experiencing. What's the fear of crashing like? in those moments you can't even think about it because if you think about it that's what your that's where your focus goes you have to focus on the fact of I'm staying upright and doing everything I can to be safe and so it's literally a survival mode when you're at that there's nothing else you can think of but survival and basically you, a lot of it is instincts I was a downhill mountain bike racer and so you have to really be able to go quickly with decisions on which tri- where to go what to do and I think that really helped me to be able to stay within that pocket of air and react to some of the buffeting that I was experiencing. You know, your real specific training for this effort, I would imagine it's probably centered around a lot of power. What are the types of things you were doing to, you know, build that muscle, get that power up for this type of effort? 
Well, I had a, I have John Howard as my coach on the bike, and I had Jacques DeVore with Sirens and Titans Fitness. He developed the book Maximum Overload for Cyclists, and he developed the program in the gym for strength training. And so there was a lot of strength training, walking lunges where I was holding 30 to 40 pounds in each hand while I'm doing walking lunges for a period of time to replicate the surging factor of what was occurring behind the vehicle on the bike because it's a surge and then release a little surge and release a little and so it's like intervals and it was very much was simulated with the walking lunges I did deadlifts and what have you so I had a very specific program in the gym and then on the bike and um, it, it and we did a lot of motor pacing too. Um, worked down at the San Diego Velodrome was motor pacing behind a gentleman named uh, Matt who helped me prepare by doing special workouts specific to em emulating what I needed to do. You know, I think some people may look at this and say this is really dangerous and really cool, but like why do this what's the point like this is you know you're, you're going faster than anyone has gone before but you're risking your life and it's not you know it's not within the normal box of sort of cycling accomplishments that cyclists may see of year in year out why do this well, I tell you what, that that gets answered a lot when we were out at Bonneville and everybody out there that's pushing their limits, we're all part of the crazy club. There's just something that draws the opportunity out there. I mean, this this is something that's been done since 1899. So it's not something I made up. It's something I'm following in the footsteps of and just challenged to break that next record. And I think, you know, I, I love a challenge. I love setting goals. And like I said, this idea started with John Howard mentioning that no woman has ever gone for this. And that was one of the first trips was I got an opportunity to do something that no other female had ever even attempted to do. So I got to be a first in history. And so that started it. And then it just leapfrogged to the next goal, which is going after the overall record. So what's next? <laughs> what is next? That's a great question because um, I've, I've decided to not open my mouth and guarantee I'm going to be doing anything in particular. This has been a six-year journey with John to get to here. The idea came up in 2012, and we're at 2018. So there's been a lot of dedication and sacrifice to get to this point. Um, it only seems logical because I get the question, what is next? And the logical next trajectory on this record would be 200 miles an hour. And so we've... <laughs> John's shaking his head over here. And so I have not said yes to it, but the irony is we've had somebody come to us, and in fact, the Vescos that um, John Howard paced behind their vehicle, they're, they're thinking that it can go 200, they could put a fairing back on it. So I, I just, if I were to even consider going after 200 miles an hour, if I were to, we'd have to have aerodynamic engineering, wind tunnel testing, because I wouldn't want to do that with the existing car that I did this year. The wind was too difficult to deal with, and another 16 or so miles miles an hour, I don't think would be safe. I see the wheels spinning in both of your heads. 200 miles an hour, could it be done? Uh, I think we might be back here in two years having another <laughs> conversation about this. Uh, well, congrats to you, Denise. Congrats to you, John. Denise, you're following in, uh, in the footsteps of John. But you know, John has a song written about him. We're going to have a listen to a little clip right now. Denise, I think you need to have a song now 
written about you and your accomplishment. Uh, but again, congrats and thanks for, uh, for making time for us. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Fred. Crazy interview with old Denise. Uh, one thing that I thought really stood out to me, we, we chatted afterwards and, you know, I was asking about her training and um, what allows her to do this record. And again, she said, you know, I'm not like a World Cup track sprinter. I don't put out crazy amounts of power. Um, I don't have the endurance of like a top level road racer. Um, it's basically my ability to, to like handle the insanity of the situation Mind power and to be crazy. She was just like, cause I want it. Cause I want to do it. That is like part of what has allowed her to be able to ride faster than any other person. It's just like desire a kind of level of insanity and a large dragster to tow you up to speed, large dragster to tow you up to speed and just the ability to, to deal with that situation. I would not be able no to do what? that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we salute you, Denise. Nicely cool. done. And thanks for uh, putting John Howard on the mic, too. It's always a pleasure to talk with John Howard. Uh, guys, before we get out of here, we need to do a little what's off the front, what's off the back, hot and not in the world of pro cycling. Dane, would you like to lead us off? Sure. Off the front for me, as is often off the front for me. Danes. <laughs> Mikel Bjork, oh, defending his so good. under 23. No, it's never going to get old. I'm just going to keep sticking with it. Uh, Danish rider Mikel Bjork defended his under 23 time trial title at Worlds. That makes him twice in a row. He's 19 years old, and he is, of course, a Hackensperman action rider. Yet another find for Axel Merckx over there. Uh, another Danish rider finished third on that uh, podium. So impressive rides Bjerg, by the Danes. Bjerg won by like 33 seconds Yeah, in just like a yeah. half an hour race, yeah. which is ridiculous. He's definitely a very, very promising talent for the future. Oh, yeah, for um, the now. Off the back, well... I'm going to go with uh, trade team time trials off the back because I don't know that we're going to be seeing them anytime soon. We had the last, as far as we know it, World's TTT for trade teams uh, just this week. This was the last one. Quickstep went out with a bang, winning it on the men's side. And Canyon SRAM, I think, surprised some folks winning it on the women's side. And that's it. Spin zone for Canyon SRAM and Quickstep. Now they can say they're undefeated TTT world champions for years Forever. in perpetuity. Yeah. So that, that'll be a fun one. Did you see that video of Canyon SRAM waiting to get the final splits to see if they'd won or not? Yeah. Warm my heart, man. They yeah, were so great. happy. They were very pleased. Yeah. A lot of screams. Yeah. Yep. Uh, off the front, off the pack, Spencer? Yes. I'm for off the front, I'm going to say uh, jeans are off the front. And, yeah, uh, like uh, 501s, Levi's? No, 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 no. Not tight hipster denim, jeans? Not denim jeans. I'm mm. talking about genetics. Good okay. genetics. Because if you look closely at the Women's Junior World Time Trial results, you'll see some familiar names. Third place, Eleanor Bagstedt. Sure, she's from Great Britain, but she's actually the daughter of Norwegian great Magnus Bagstedt. And then in 11th place, Britt Knaven, the Dutch rider, who is the daughter of Surveys Knaven. Both uh, Paris-Roubaix winners. There you go. Backstead and Knaven. Huh. And their daughters are awesome TT riders. Connect the dots on that one. So that's my off the front. And my off the back is American Geography. And that's because our, our world champion of cyclocross, Wout Van Aert, he cut ties with his sniper team this past week ahead of the first World Cup in Waterloo, Wisconsin. That was kind of a weird one because he had to like return some team bikes. They demanded that he send it back and they had to rebuild them with different frames. It was kind of a it was kind of a junk show for him in this week leading up to the race. And of course that meant he had a new kit. And what he did with his kit was he did the the traditional, you know, rainbow jersey and he just had a W dot VA for a while. Van Aert, of course. But I don't think he realized that for most of us Americans, we see that and we're like 
Oh, West Virginia? West Virginia. Oh, shoot, son. I didn't know you were from there. Oh, God you're... dang. Cyclocross rider coming out of West Virginia. Well-known West Virginia name like Woat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he worked down in the shop and save. I know him. Uh, yeah, I don't think he realized that, but I guess it doesn't matter since he's he's really, you know, he pays the bills by racing in Europe. We apologize to all our West Virginian listeners. Yeah, that is not a West Virginia accent. I thought accent. wasn't awful. It was I, just... Like, at the beginning, it was okay. Dane's from regular Virginia, yeah, so uh, you've come across West Virginia. Uh, yeah, I got quite a few friends and, you know, friends or relatives. I've ridden my, 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 my yeah. mountain bike in West Virginia. It's good, right? It's yeah. glorious. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Wild Van Aert... Doesn't understand U.S. states, I guess. Or maybe he does and he just doesn't care. Probably the latter. Well, he's, he's a smart guy. He's smart. He's going to get on a team and make all of the monies. So congrats to Wout Van Aert. Uh, for my off the front, off the back, we'll start with the off the back. And that is home field advantage. I have a very uh, Waterloo cyclocross World Cup-centric off the front and back. And the American disadvantage was on full display in the men's elite race. Uh, unfortunately, our reigning U.S. champion, Stephen Hyde, crashed very early in the race. I think he, like, injured his shoulder. He took to Instagram to talk about his various injuries. He was a did-not-finish. And then just afterwards, top American finisher... 22nd place, Kerry Werner. And it just seemed like all of the Americans slotted in yeah, after and, that. And they had mishaps too, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. Lance Heidet, who just won Reno Cross's first C1 victory, UCI C1 victory. He crashed on the barriers, I think. Mm. I remember you mentioned in that. And um, Alan Krugoff, a Boulder guy, he was in the race and he had a like crash where he ripped a like a buckle off of his shoe he had to get a shoe replaced mid-race like that's not how you, that's not how it goes that's i wonder if there's a shoe hand up can you do a shoe a shoe up you might need to do that in the same place as a pit but yes i think so um off the front though is from the very same race in the women's side jumping stuff because yeah. ellen noble our compatriot was bunny hopping those barriers and because she was doing that was able to keep up with mariana voss uh, ellen noble finished second place and there were a couple times where I think Bunny Hopping may have allowed Voss to have a slight advantage. I think at one point, and at one point, yeah, Ellen, the, Ellen did crash. There was actually one very significant, yeah. Yeah, but she kept doing it. Great photo by Will Matthews of uh, Ellen basically doing the turtle, still clipped in on her back. Mariana Voss kind of trying to squeak by her, and the looks on the face of the spectators are priceless. Just yeah. freaking out. Yeah. But uh, Ellen Noble, best career result in the World Cup. She's coming on strong start of the season for Cross. Congrats to her. Dane, would you be bunny hopping anything like that mm, jumping over anything probably, you, probably not listeners should take note dane is frowning and shaking his head i feel like you asked this no. question knowing the answer too no it's probably not leading question yeah. your honor yeah <laughs> well we'd love to hear your feedback on what we talked about today you can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com we'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellanews.com subscribe to the bellanews podcast on itunes stitcher or google play and while you're there please leave us a comment and a rating become a fan of bellanews on facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Villa News podcast is produced by Villa News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the Villa News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy, Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Mm-hmm.